Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hello, yogis. I have missed you. I have received a few notes about missing me, so perhaps there's a few of you out there. I'm posting an episode today, though I am reticent to describe it as an episode because I was actually quite cheerful to leave things at episode 42 for a period of time. For those of you who have read Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you will know that 42 is the secret to the universe and everything. It's never explained what the secret is, what 42 means. It just is the answer. So I was quite pleased that at around 42 episodes, I was burning out. I decided to take a period of time off. And initially, it was the result of what's called pod fading, which is simply the podcaster either runs out of content or life catches up with them. In my case, it was life catching up with me. And I simply had to take a step back for a period of time. And since I didn't know how long that setback was going to be and what came next, I decided not to announce anything about that. Here I am as ready as I will ever be to tell you what is coming next and how what is coming next is a little bit contingent on you. Today is Harvey's second birthday, so it's also a big milestone in my life as a parent and Harvey's life as a Harvey. So it feels like an auspicious time to make this recording. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about making yoga work as in uh, making yoga financially sustainable as a yoga teacher, not in a full-time teacher type way, but as a sort of cultivating your own barometer for whether your offerings are sustainable or not. Then I'm going to talk about how the way I've been doing the podcast so far is not sustainable and how I've got to change to make it sustainable. Let's talk yoga work. I got a lovely note from someone saying that she appreciated how much I was cultivating an educator first approach to the practice of yoga. And I wrote back that it's essential that we see ourselves as students of yoga first, because first of all, there's probably too many people who are qualified to be yoga teachers, uh, just because of the proliferation of yoga teacher trainings. That's not a criticism of the proliferation of teacher trainings. I think that in the teacher training, there is an essential education about how to live and communicate well. And that's some education that I wish had come a lot earlier in my life. These programs really should be called essential yoga education. But I think in the, in the society that we live in, where productivity and return on investment is a priority for a lot of people, I think people see the, uh, see the ability to convert their education into income. And that gives them permission to offer themselves the opportunity in the first place. 
that the tuition, while it might be expensive, will be recouped through the teaching of yoga. This is not always a wise thing to do. I find it best not to draw a straight line between my yoga education and my yoga income. So there are many, many people coming out of yoga teacher trainings, and the journey as to whether they teach or not is often uh, surprising. Lots of people come in very confident they will teach and choose not to. Many people come in and feel that it's for their own practice more than anything, uh, but then they realize that they actually do have the interest and skills to offer something in a context that's supportive and helpful for them, such as a lunchtime yoga session at work. If we do not see ourselves as practitioners first, Yoga becomes just another job. And it's a job that centers on relationships. So if you feel that you are not being paid sufficiently for your time and your education, or if your students are being difficult in the way that people can be difficult, anxiety, anger, uh, grasping resentments, all of these things that come up around jobs and money and obligation, these will come up in your yoga as well. For example, people will enroll in your classes and enroll in your trainings or workshop, and then they will unenroll because life interferes and they, they feel they need to take themselves out. If you only have a couple of people enrolled in your course or your class, and then someone taking a step back uh, makes it impossible for you to run that course financially sustainably, you might get angry at that person or resent that person if it's not financially sustainable for you. There's another conversation to be had here about refund policies but it points to the importance of financial stability. Now in movement practices, stability and strength are not the same thing. Strength is the ability to bear a load. So, uh, you know, if I hand you a really heavy box, if you have the strength to hold the box, then the box will stay at about the same level that I hand it to you at. If you don't have the strength, you will fall to the ground or the box will fall to the ground. Hopefully you don't go with it. Stability is the ability to not be moved. So if someone goes to stand on one leg and they can't stand on one leg without their toe coming to the ground, then some of their joints, their, their person does not have the stability to stay still on one leg. So stability is the ability to not be moved. And of course, we want to imagine some of the qualities of water and air here, right? Some of the movement, because it's yoga, we want to be flexible. Anyone who's taught yoga for any period of time knows that sometimes you teach a class and the numbers aren't there. And so, okay, you know, you honor your commitment, you show up the best that you can. And frankly, I think small groups are, are such wonderful opportunities. I teach in a couple of studios, uh, or I have taught in studios where, because it's a one room studio, there are really high class numbers. And sometimes if you're 
growing up in that kind of studio environment, if you only see a few people in the room, you take that as a sign of failure. It's such a, it's such an opportunity particularly because so many people come into the yoga studio and some people are looking for anonymity, but others aren't. They want to be seen. If you have a small group, you have an incredible opportunity to cultivate a practice and a connection with a few people and actually feel connected rather than having to stretch your connection and presence over a large group. So I personally see small groups as an opportunity. Not everyone is going to want that kind of connection, but that's okay. You haven't wanted a connection with every single person that you've met either. It's not personal. It's just two contexts meeting. So sometimes you teach a class and it's not that many people, uh, or you run a workshop and it's, it's not, and the investment from you is greater than the return to you. This is sustainable if there are other elements uh, in the whole makeup that make your career and make your teaching sustainable. So if the income is coming from somewhere else or if your uh, other courses are enrolling really well. When you introduce anxiety, financial anxiety, you start to act weird. Because when we get anxious around money, we feel more pressure to convert people into customers. And so we try to be more of what they want than aligned with what we have to offer. This might be where from a planning perspective, you start to offer more things like, oh, I don't know what's popular, vino and vinyasa, goat yoga, whatever it is, right? You, you start to create incentives for people to show up. Studios know that this is a reality in the summertime, particularly in places like where I live, where summer is an unfortunate blip on the entire annual calendar. And so they create incentives to draw people into the studio to practice because people want to be outside. So they both increase their incentivization, but they also plan for a quieter season. I saw a post in a yoga group recently and it was about a woman who was running a pre-registered class. And she was asking the other yogis in the group for advice on what to do to make it more financially sustainable and how to convey refund policies and pricing policies to the people that were signing up for the group. There was a comment that she made that for me raised a red flag about the instability of what she was offering. She mentioned that a woman asked if she could just sign up for three out of four classes rather than four out of four because she could only, et cetera, only attend one, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, doesn't she know that I have to pay to rent the space, whether she's there or not? To which I thought, of course she does not know, because until you've rented space until you've owned a small business until, you know, you found out what it costs to keep the lights on. You have no idea how much it costs to do these things. And the super tricky thing is that yoga is expensive in so many ways. The, the price to practice is high and yet the return to the teacher is, is quite low. 
Sometimes people will do their yoga teacher training and they make assumptions about what they can earn per class and how many classes they can do per week. Now, I have to admit, I have never been in a position where I've needed to teach 15 to 20 classes a week. I believe I maxed out around 11, but even at 11, that was a lot in my week. And you start teaching early and you frequently teach late for two years I taught a 9.30 p.m. power class, uh, which I just wanted to slow clap everyone who was there. I'm an early bird. I would never attend that class of my own volition as a student. But that was the class that was available to me. And there actually was a wonderful group of incredibly devoted people. And we got up to some fun, interesting activities because it was a late fringe class. So, you know, even classes that seem unappealing to me now to add to my schedule, they certainly had things uh, that were wonderful about the wonderful characteristics because all of these opportunities uh, present opportunities and challenges. But it's different when you're the person organizing the class uh, rather than a studio who mans the desk. Uh, Oh, and that's another thing that yoga students really don't know is they have no idea the amount of time that goes around classes because sometimes successful studios or big studios rather have someone on the desk. So the teacher just shows up and teaches, but sometimes you have to be the desk person So you're getting paid to teach, but you have what could be hours around your class just for your physical presence, let alone your education and your preparation and your travel time. So when you teach a lot of classes, you wind up with these little bits of time in between, which are really just good for maybe paying a few bills and answering a few emails. And if you've ever wondered why you always see yoga teachers striking poses in the studios they teach in, I'm sure the lighting is good and they've got their phones propped up against blocks, but they also probably have an hour and 15 minutes of time to kill. And so they cultivate their social media in between their classes when the studio is empty. So back to my example, of course, that person does not understand how much of an investment it is for you to be there, which is why you have to make sure that your offerings are sustainable before you get angry at people all along the way. You can educate them. This is a pre-registered series. It's five weeks long. Here is the cost. If you know you have a planned absence, I am willing to offer you that amount off of the next class pass, or you can offer the opportunity to a friend to attend the program. But I'm afraid that my costs for renting the space are fixed and I need to have a certain number of people with a certain level of commitment to make this worth my time. I really hope you're able to join. And if they're not able to join, you have to make a decision. Are you willing to put in the time to build and create the community? Or is that too much on your plate? Are you in a season of needing to be a practitioner rather than someone who's a practitioner as well as sharing in the seat of teacher? An Instagram post that's occurred to me a few times would be, why are you so committed to sharing something you don't do? I've seen it happen so often that people 
you know, have their full-time jobs or have their demands of family and they teach a few classes on the side. But especially if, if you have children and a full-time job, two, three evenings a week, uh, for you to go and have this second job. And if you're driving your kids around or you have other commitments, it really doesn't leave a lot of time for your own practice. I'm not saying that I have answers, but I personally think that the best arrangement, if you really want to make teaching the yoga work, is a part-time job that's got a more predictable income and set hours, and then part-time teaching yoga. Teaching yoga is also an excellent retirement plan, but maybe you do want to accrue some experience over the years. And so that one lunchtime class or that one evening class can be really helpful in, in cultivating your skillfulness and your repertoire. I've seen yoga teachers change things before they get to the point of successful community building. They change the name because they're worried that what they're offering isn't cool enough, uh, or they change the time. And I, I tell, I've told this story frequently because I've recently made a big change to my schedule and to my decisions so that my work is coming more closely into alignment with how I want to be treated at work and the kind of work that I want to do and the kind of schedule that I want to have. So I've been making some big changes and those changes come with as much hope as they do fear and many false starts, but I'm muddling my way through it. The practice is helping. However, I see a lot of people change things before they've had time for commitment And so this story is that when I was leaving this other studio, someone said to me, oh, you, you left your Tuesday night class. I've been meaning to come for years and I was almost there. (laughs) And that, that might sound totally absurd to you, but, but that's, I believe that person. I believe that for the last five, six years that I was on that class, they were meaning to come. But people need consistency and they need longevity uh, because people's lives change. They have kids, they change jobs, they move neighborhoods. And so you'll often have your regulars for a period of time and then change happens in their life. But so many of us have not been doing this for long enough to see a year over year trend. I've been teaching in this community for six years. And I'm now just starting to see some students cycle back who did teacher training with me, you know, several years ago, they're now just starting to come back into practice with me. Um, because that's, that's the life cycle of yoga. Now I'd like to switch gears and talk to you about the podcast. I launched the podcast while my partner, Alex was still on paternity leave. And before those of you who are listening elsewhere start putting on your isn't Canada fabulous hat, uh, he did have paternity leave and it was fabulous uh, because he's a public servant. He was, however, also phoenixed. And that's, uh, that's a term for the software system that the public service in Canada uses. And so he got caught in this uh, scandal that when he went on paternity leave, it changed his income. And so we didn't receive income for uh, nine or 10 months once he went on paternity leave. My income was the only money coming in 
and I had just had an infant and I was a yoga teacher. So (laughs) things were definitely not stable. And I also, uh, I chose to go back to work quite quickly. In some ways, I'm very glad I did because we had a very difficult time. Harvey screamed pretty much nonstop for the first five months wouldn't sleep past 5am till well past a year. We had lots of breastfeeding challenges and, uh, and teaching was this place that was, you know, mostly governed by logic and, and where I actually felt quite good at something, uh, which I didn't feel at home (laughs) for those first few months. I remember looking at Alex saying, I don't think he likes me. (laughs) Oh, parenting. Uh, so I launched this podcast and there were a number of reasons that I launched it, but one of them was because I needed a way to connect to the wider community because of the constraints of some of the agreements that I had in place that I wasn't able to promote certain things. And so I wanted a more visible platform to Uh, to have my voice be out there and to share some of what I had to say that people might seek out and then connect with their friends, right? A a valuable resource. And it's, it's been an incredibly valuable resource. One of uh, the many friendships and studentships that I've had out of it is my friend, Erin, who reached out because she had listened to the podcast. And now uh, we teach together and we train together and I, I really, really value her friendship. And so this is my little, this is my little Aaron shout out. I've had the opportunity to talk to some people I really respect, including some of my own teachers, uh, who I would like to have back on, but I've learned that I am a genuinely crap sponsorship person, whatever the term is for someone who procures sponsorship. I really should have seen this coming. A large approach that I've had over the years is I'll just be studying and practicing in this corner. And if you want to come find me, I'll be over here and maybe you'll tell your friends and then they will also come. But I'm learning how to be more confident in my sharing because if, if we don't share the valuable things that we have, And it's not the necessarily deep things that we have. I'll reference back to the conversation that I had to Don Mauricio, where we were talking about how it's a social media in particular, it's a superficial platform. And so we can't share too deeply. It's just not the right context. Even the podcast, this is a, this is a one-sided conversation. You and I aren't sitting here having this chat together where your ideas would, would fuel the direction of where this is going. So it's still not the right context for all the conversations we could have, but it's certainly deeper than social media. I probably should have known that I was not the best person to try to create a sponsorship driven podcast. There are yoga podcasts out there that have sponsorship they're typically an interview format. So the person on the podcast has multiple people on. So I think of Jay Brown yoga talks and he's very comfortable in the, uh, what's your yoga history and sort of New York city, San Francisco centered yoga community. And then there's yoga land with Andrea Ferretti. 
and she interviews a variety of yogis. However, I've learned that I am a better teacher than I am a journalist. I've been in situations where I'm not fully comfortable with where the conversation is going in that I don't necessarily want to create a platform for some of the things that are being said, or I don't feel comfortable with how I'm being treated behind the scenes by the, by the interview guest. And while I don't pretend to understand the machinations of karma, it is extremely important to me that I do my best to live kindly and compassionately. And I, I hope to be treated that way from the people uh, that I have on the podcast. So it's not that I don't want to have interview guests on. It's just that having guests on reduces some of the workload on the person hosting the podcast so they can put out more episodes. And then of course, uh, they have on people who have big platforms. Those people theoretically share it with their platforms. And then the overall listenership of the podcast increases. I'm not so great, again, at having on people that maybe have big platforms already and then giving them yet another one. And a lot of the people that I'm interested in having on for conversations are people who are difficult to get a hold of. It took me a long time to get Yoganand Michael Carroll, um, but I feel it was so valuable because he's just such a yogic treasure. And then I'm also very interested in having on academics and academics don't have to come on because tenure. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of false starts. Sometimes they answer, sometimes they don't. Um, and then the best way to get them to answer is to do some reading in their particular work and prepare the questions ahead of time, but it's no guarantee. So I've had opportunities to do some study and then the guest doesn't come on. So what I'm saying is that I would like to continue to offer podcasts. I would like to offer something that is of content that is of service. So sometimes I can't offer content or I feel that it's uh, against my own interest to offer content because it's what I offer in my trainings or in my workshops. And I would like to make more of that available. But then I also need to be supported because any investment that I put into the podcast, I am taking away investment time and resources from something else where I do earn an income. Hosting the podcast has been a delight and it has also cost me quite a bit of money. I've had to invest childcare dollars, many over $1,500, because if you turn on a phone or a computer around Harvey, he starts asking for babies. And by that, he means he would like to look at pictures and videos of himself. So I have to use my few daycare days to record the podcast. I obviously also have to invest in servers and equipment uh, and software and I tallied and it's been well over $2,000 that's gone into all of these things to get the podcast started. Last time I checked, the podcast had been downloaded over 33,000 times. And so I hope that, you know, even if half of those downloads have been valuable, that you see enough value in it to support me so that I can continue to make valuable content for you.
which is why I am launching a Patreon campaign, because that way I don't need to worry about sponsorship. I can ask you directly. And if the will is there, if the interest is there, then it gives me the mandate to continue to create things and to continue to offer them in a way that they are a part of my stability as a yoga teacher and a part of your stability as a practitioner. If you would like to see the Patreon campaign and donate, it's at patreon.com backslash intelligent edge yoga. Patreon is a platform that allows supporters in a community to offer creators the income to keep creating. This initial request to support what we've done so far and to take a reading to see who is out there and who is interested in having me continue to create. From there, I'm going to relaunch the podcast uh, with a different format. I'm considering monthly installments, longer episodes that include more research, more preparation, and perhaps more approaches like both content and meditations or practices. I'm considering series, at which points I will adjust the Patreon campaign to make more sense for what I'm doing at the time. One of the things that I'm very excited to do is a yoga philosophy lens on Harry Potter. So that's coming. Not sure if that's not an incentive or if you could care less, but for those Potter heads in the audience, it's on its way. I have learned in my career that I am not everybody's flavor, but to quote Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is taken. So perhaps I am the tiger tail of yoga. Perhaps I am just quirky enough that I stay in the ice cream container of yoga for all of eternity, but the few people who love it really love it. I used to think that my earnestness was a liability, and I've grown to appreciate that there are many earnest practitioners out there. It's just some of you are far away. So I'm asking you, dear listener, do you want more? Do you want rich content? And are you willing to help support me to support you? Any amount is appreciated. I would love to know your thoughts. And if you're interested in supporting, I will certainly put the Patreon support button on my website, intelligentedge.yoga. And you can also find it at patreon.com backslash intelligent edge yoga. Thank you so much for listening, yogis. Namaste for now.